Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Career Navigators podcast. This is where we learn together how others experience their transition from academia into the world and what they're up to now. So if you, like me, want to set your compass for a journey outside of academia and you want to identify which non-academic voyage might be for you, welcome to the pod. And remember, even if our guest doesn't have the exact background, location or job you're interested in, try to keep an open mind. There's always something to learn. I'm your host, Nikki van Teilingen-Bakker. Today I'm joined by Victoria Korsova, who I met through Pint of Science Germany. She did her PhD in neuroscience at the LMU in Munich. And while doing her PhD and after, she tried her hand at so many different things, including multiple science communication projects, mentoring, science management, sales and digital marketing, before losing her job and becoming a product manager. And she will tell us today how she, but also you, have time to do all of those different things. So let's get into it. Enjoy. Okay, so today I have with me Victoria Korsova. Your LinkedIn profile is very impressive. There's a, there's a lot to, to digest. So um, I think what we'll start with is if you could give a short introduction of yourself and of your background, and then from there we can yeah, dive into all the, all the different experiences that you've, you've had until now. Sure. Thank you, Nikki, for having me here. Oh, I have several versions of the introduction, depending on the situation where I am. Uh, but uh, my most current and new introduction is that I'm a product manager with a background in neuroscience. And this is uh, exactly true about me. So my official title in the job is now um, associate product manager. I work in the company called Product People. And we are a consultancy for product management. And we can later go into more detail about product management if you want. Uh, my background is indeed in neuroscience. I have PhD in neuroscience or more specifically neurobiology. Uh, I have masters and bachelor's and master's in biology from St. Petersburg State University in Russia. Uh, after finishing my master's there, I came to Germany to do PhD in, um, in Munich. I was a student of LMU Munich and working at the German Center for Neurodegenerative Diseases studying Alzheimer's disease. And then I had two other jobs in between of um, in between leaving the lab and starting this position as a product manager, uh, which were more or less connected to to science, at least much more than my current position is. My first uh, job after the lab was uh, in science management. I worked as the a scientific coordinator uh, in the graduate program at the Max Planck Institute of uh, Biochemistry. And then I worked uh, as sales and digital marketing and support. Uh, and the official title of the job was application scientist uh, in the company called Neurotar, which makes and sells equipment for neurobiological experiments. This is the at least official uh, side of my work story. Um, outside of work, <laughs> I had more work uh, uh, since uh, 2014 approximately. I started uh, doing a bit of uh, consulting in, about science careers and science education for Russian speaking students. And this came from my personal experience of going abroad which still was and still I would say is something 
quite exotic uh, in, in for Russia and for other Russian-speaking countries. It's often very difficult for students to understand how this is possible, what to do, and that's why there are always people coming to me for advice. And I started this kind of small side business uh, to consult them, and I still continue doing that uh, until today. And the other side of my activities is science communication. And I started this in a, let's say, well, I started it still back in Russia. I was writing some articles for science communication website uh, called Biomolecule. So it was about uh, molecular biology and biochemistry and such uh, for, but for a general public. And then when I came to Germany, I was also curious what I can do in this uh, area. Uh, and I joined first Find of Science Munich. And I was actually among the, in the first team who organized Pint of Science in Munich. Uh, then I was a Germany director for Pint of Science for a year. Uh, simultaneously, I started another science communication project in Munich uh, called Soapbox Science. And eventually, right now, I'm uh, mostly working on a project or an, on an organization called Houston by Four Munich. We also organize science communication events uh, with lectures for general public. Yeah, I would say that's uh, main main things from my profile. Yeah, like I said, that's that's a lot of things. Um, I guess the first question that kind of pops into my mind is really how how did you manage all these things? Like how how do you distinguish all your different uh, science communication projects from each other how did you have time to do a phd or or work on the site like how how are you managing your work-life balance or even your work mm. balance let's say um well first of all I, of course I, you we need to remember that all these things i listed didn't happen all at the same time and it's my life over the last more or less seven years so it's now seven years old let's see on the 25th of uh September, it will be seven years exactly as since I came to Germany with a one-way ticket. And surprisingly, I'm st I stayed in the one city, which I did not really expect, but it happened. And so far, I st stayed in Munich, the place where I came initially. And then all these things happened, uh, some of them consecutively, not at the same time. Uh, otherwise, I think there were different reasons. Uh, for doing different things. Uh, first of all, at some point during my PhD, I would say pretty early years, I realized that just what I did in the lab was not enough for me. I had other interests. That I wanted to do other stuff. I wanted to have more interaction with other people, which I was missing in my research project. I was, uh, we were like two people working with the same technique, and this was kind of a small team, but the rest I was pretty on my own. And I also wanted to experience something else. This is why I started to be involved in some student activities that were organized by university, or organized by institute, or by student uh, like community. And I uh, took part in organizing um, a conference for PhD students. And through this, I figured that it was actually a lot of fun. It was nice to have something in addition uh, to my lab work. And this was actually the first project that was I had really big involvement with. So. Uh, quite many hours were invested sometimes, you know, during their work hours in the lab, and which then in return made me stay longer maybe in the evening to do stuff for the lab. But 
um, I had to do some things in, during the day for like calling companies and so on. I was working in the um, uh, finance team. I was actually leading the finance team. So there was a lot of con contacting companies and figuring out who can be our sponsor. Uh, and so one thing was that I really discovered that I like this kind of activities, organizing, working with other people in the team, and also seeing the result of my work pretty fast, which again, wasn't true for my research projects. I worked with animals with super long experiments. Uh, many of them failed also after this super long time. So you do experiment for longer and then you discover, okay, well, nothing actually worked and you should have done it differently and then you start again. So having this uh, different experience in uh, in the organizing um, area inspired me a lot to continue. And then I was looking more actively for what is else is available. So this student conference kind of came just through the mailing list. And I just thought, okay, this might be fun. I didn't really have a good understanding how it would be. And like, interestingly, in my bachelor's or master's, I actually wasn't really involved with any similar things. Um, then the other thing was, after a while, I was also getting more and more frustrated with my PhD. And I also really wanted to do stuff that would give me some gratitude. And for example, consulting students was really helpful because then I could, yeah, people were grateful that I could help them. I really managed to help students students who I consulted went to do internships in good universities or went to do master or PhD in good places. The other thing I think was that I also got interested in how academia is built and to be able to tell, give students good advice, how to look for a good lab or how to plan their research career. I was also trying to understand better how it's working around me, what I see, what other people experience. It was a very also interesting uh, area to explore so again coming kind of i was doing things that i enjoyed and that were giving me some um, good feeling about myself because i could achieve something and i think overall this is the main thing how you can find time for things is that if you find something that you enjoy doing then you will eventually find a way to do it yeah, I can really identify with some of the things you said, especially when it comes to like the sort of instant gratification and the gratitude. It's sometimes a little bit hard to find doing lab work, especially as you say, if you work with animals or really long time experiments that at the end of it sometimes don't even work. <laughs> um, mm. It's it's quite hard to to deal with that because I also saw that you had some lab experience in other places, not only in Russia and not only in Munich. And together with your experience uh, consulting students, how would you say that these the academic um, environment changes between all of these different places where you where you've been? So I worked also uh, for quite short periods of time, though. So it was for internships, two three months. Uh, I was in Switzerland, in Lausanne. Uh, I was in um, uh, USA, in Texas, in Dallas, and I was in Israel, in Weizmann Institute. And these all are very good places. Um, and I wouldn't say they are so much different, that they're similar system compared to Germany. Of course, each individual organization, each institute, each university has a bit of their own spirit, a bit of their own way of doing things. But overall, the academic system is pretty unified in the so-called Western world, I would say. 
in Russia, situation is pretty different uh, for mostly historical reasons and the way the system developed and the way the political uh, system developed in the last hundred years. There were so many changes that, of course, affected the economy and also the less not so necessary areas of human activities like doing research is nothing that you need to survive. So um, mostly uh, the system is kind of weird there. But I'm not sure that our um, audience is interested to learn in details how Russia works in this sense. Yeah, that might be a discussion for another time. <laughs> but then what are some of the what is some of the most common advice you give to to students from Russia? Because I'm sure there's mm. there's similar systems all over the place and advice can sometimes be very uh, universal. So what is some of the mm -hmm. most common advice or some of the most common questions they have for you? Mm -hmm. So first, usually, uh, first of all, I usually work with undergrads, so master and bachelor students. Uh, and I prefer working with them because I think this is the where I can give them make the most difference and really give them knowledge that they will use in the later years. Uh, and first, just tell them there are many opportunities that they can use. And this is first thing which is not obvious and which might be which is not obvious for Russian students and which many of the European or American students will not relate to because for them this is something clear that you can go for internships, that you can go to exchange programs and so on. In Russia, this just there is a lack of information and transparency about this. And I just tell them there are these programs that you can apply and it's not too tricky and you should definitely try doing that. And you will see the students are in other countries are not smarter or any way like more great than you are. You're also good. Um, this is first thing. Then I say, okay, if you guys consider academic career, uh, think twice and revisit this decision a few times during your academic journey and during the education. And it's totally fine if at some point you realize this is not for you. There is no shame. Academia is not the place for the most smart and brilliant people. Um, there are many smart and brilliant people in academia, but there are also many pl other places where smart and brilliant people work and where you can find your passion and where you will enjoy. So it's just one of the areas of human um, work or of the things that people do. And you if you are interested, you should definitely try. But it's also fine if you decide that this is not working for you because it's doing research is a very specific kind of job. And the next thing I tell them, if you enjoy doing research, consider if you also would enjoy being a professor eventually. Uh, and I explain how this academic ladder works currently in the Western world. Again, I would say in Russia, it's a bit different, but people who want to do cool research mostly want to go abroad. And I explain them that there is a ladder. Uh, you, most cases, cannot really stay in the middle of it. You have to move to the top and become an in, uh, independent uh, researcher uh, uh, lab head. And this is when you will finally get a permanent position and kind of a bit relaxed. But importantly, this job is different from job of a PhD student or a postdoc. So you should consider, first of all, if you would be happy with this kind of job. Because again, this is not so much about doing research yourself. It's more about managing people, administration, funding money, and so on. And if you think still this is fun, you should be very conscious about your chances. And my like rule of thumb is that after 
when you finish your PhD, you you already will know how high are your chances. Your PhD needs to be successful uh, in many ways to have good prospect in the career in academia. And if this is not happening, if for whatever reasons, maybe independent of you, maybe just because you were unlucky with a project or something, um, you don't see that you are very successful, maybe think twice if you want to continue trying to climb the ladder, or maybe it's time that you move on to something else. And again, and if you realize that research is something you like, but you don't want to be a manager uh, of like who, who often the PI is, then maybe it's also time to look for where else research is happening and where you can keep doing research uh, rather than climb this ladder again. It it really depends from person to person. I agree with what you say in terms of, I think it's it depends on your skill set. If you have what it takes to become a PI and you enjoy being in academia, then by all means mm -hmm. continue in academia. If you have other skills that can also be useful somewhere else or even in a place where you might enjoy working more, then also you can do that. It really depends on the person. So then you give this advice to undergrads, let's say, but I'm assuming that maybe, or maybe you did get this advice. Like, how did you make the decision to actually come to Germany? Mm, I wouldn't say that I personally get so much advice, got so much advice when I was a student. And actually, this is why I started giving advice myself is because I was liking it. And this is often what happens. You start doing something which you didn't have when you wish you had. Um, and why I came to Germany was because I was pretty convinced I want to do research. At the, still in my master's, I enjoyed what I did. All the experience I had uh, was good. Um, I also didn't know what other options are, to be honest. It's not like I was choosing between something. I was rather thinking continue research career or I have to figure out something completely different. And research career seems like a, seemed like a nice thing to do. And then I, I knew that in Russia, it would be difficult for me uh, for a combination of reasons. One, uh, I wanted to do neurobiology and it was not very developed. So just very few labs that do something. And it was not the kind of research I was interested in. I also knew that it would be financially difficult because if I stayed as a PhD student in Russia, in most cases, the, you are paid very poorly. And I would need to work in a big uh, city where I had nothing. Uh, I would I would need to like pay rent and everything from this super small salary, which might have been even smaller than the rent price. And I would have to find another job. And this, I mean, this is what I saw what people do. And I didn't want that. So I thought, okay, if I want to continue research in a specific topic that I like, I should go abroad. Uh, the question was where to go. Um, I had nice experience in Switzerland and going to, into the lab where I did my um, internship was one of the options, but I wasn't really very interested in this research. I had also a grant from Finnish um, academic exchange uh, program. I could have went to Finland for one and a half years of research and then continue probably as a PhD student. But this was... Uh, I didn't really want to go to Finland because it's dark and cold there. 
and I lived in St. Petersburg, which is close and the weather is not great. So I actually wouldn't was thinking if I find a place with better climate, it would be nice. And then I applied to several programs, I applied to several places in Europe, uh, either to neuroscience programs or directly to some labs that I liked. Um, I had several positive interviews and eventually uh, my boyfriend, who was my um, uh, classmate, he was and also was looking for a PhD, he got an offer from Munich that he liked and I eventually uh, agreed on the offer from Munich as well. So I wouldn't say it was really thought through choice of country. But eventually I'm happy. Like I am quite happy that I ended up in Germany. Um, I think it's it's a nice country. I like, I like living here and probably in the long run, I will probably stay in Germany. Germany, you came from a country where probably you didn't speak German initially or maybe you did. Yeah, what were some of the challenges, which language I'm assuming is is one of them, that's the case for everyone who moves to a new country and do doesn't speak the language initially. What were some of the challenges, but what are some of your favorite things of parts, yeah, living in Germany and, and working in On one hand, I think I moved so many years ago, so it's a bit hard to remember how it was in the very beginning. But from what I remember, I think the most difficult parts were not the language per se, but just moving to a different country where you don't know things, uh, you don't know how to do simple things like where to buy certain stuff, what kind of shops you need to look for, because some shops were organized in a different way than they would be in my home country. And no, we don't have a concept of something like a drogery, uh, like Rossmann or DM. We don't have these kind of shops. They are like the, the the goods you can buy there in Germany would be in different shops in Russia. So this kind of stuff, I think, was, of course, tricky. And then also it was my first time being a resident in a foreign country. So all the bureaucratic stuff, uh, what needed to be sorted out. And probably their lack of German was a little bit of a problem because not always these people in administrative places would talk to you in English. Uh, the, all the regulations are written in German. But I think in this sense also Munich is not the worst place. Like Munich is pretty friendly to foreigners and it got even better. I can say definitely in the seven years, it got so much better. Like the, the U-Bahn has uh, stuff written in English. Uh, it explains everything in English and many of the international offices also have more materials available in English. It, even if people don't want to really speak English, there will be something to explain you the information. Mm. My level of German was, uh, I mean, I knew some German, but I wasn't really fluent in speaking. And of course, I also audition wasn't easy at the beginning because I didn't really have exposure to German uh, speaking country before. So I tried to uh, go by with English and it mostly worked. Mm. So overall, I would say not knowing the local language well limits your social contacts. It makes it a bit more tricky to do some administration, bureaucratic stuff, because you either need to look for people there, like for staff who speaks English, maybe you will have to come by a few times and so on or you need to find colleagues or friends who will help you with translation. Uh, but it 
it's mostly solvable. Also, interestingly, in in Germany, like for me, uh, for Russian speaker, there's quite many ways to do stuff in Russian. For example, in the bank, when I was opening my account, I actually um, I got a Russian speaking uh, person, and then that was like easy eventually because there there are quite quite many Russian speakers. And you said what I like about Germany. I I have the feeling always that Germany as a country and German people are pretty open for expats. I never felt that someone has some prejudices against me or that I wasn't welcomed. Again, there is I'm in certain social niche. I'm a highly educated person and my peers were also mostly like this. Uh, probably if you come as a person with lower education or like working class, that's different. But I think for scientists, if you come as a researcher, you are met friendly. And I think this is good for Germany. I actually feel Germany is generally, you can really find your place being an international person. While I feel that in some other countries like Switzerland, it's more tricky actually, and they're more closed. They will maybe allow you to work, but they don't really want to deal with you so much. But that's just my feeling. Yeah, I think that depends from person to person. And I think that also depends on on where you are in Germany, because obviously, like you said before, Munich is quite a big city. And so mm. it's more it's a little bit more international and people are a little bit more used to seeing foreigners and, and dealing with them also. But mm-hmm. you liked you liked it enough to to stay for a while, so mm-hmm. that is a is a good sign, I would say. So then, in terms of um, kind of your next step, because you mentioned that you were struggling a little bit with your PhD, but then you kind of flipped to be on the other side, where you became a scientific coordinator for uh, for the Impress program, so the graduate program um, at the Max Planck. So what was that experience like? What motivated you to to become a scientific coordinator? Yeah. So my I, overall, I spent the last four years doing my project. And I think from kind of the second year, I was growing in my decision to not stay in academia afterwards. I thought I will maybe make an exception in case something comes along, which is I really, really think this interesting area of research. And I like the professor and somehow they also want to have me. Uh, which I wasn't sure if this all three factors can uh, be combined easily. So I was from maybe second, third year really seriously considering uh, what else can I do outside academia? Where can I go? I did a lot of courses that anyone who is in the graduate program also probably did. Uh, But I I, I tried to learn as much as I could from various resources. What is there outside of the academic circle? Uh, how to get there. Uh, And I think this all paid off uh, because by the end um, of my third year, maybe beginning of my fourth year, I was more or less um, convinced that I want to do science management. The why I wanted to do this first, I still felt science is really cool. And while I don't really enjoy so much doing research myself, this I didn't really say, like one of the reasons why I was thinking why, that I should leave is that I realized research work 
day in day out wasn't something that I enjoyed. <clears throat> I did experiments and I was interested to know what's the result, but this doing the experiments every day wasn't really fun. And there were even more difficult parts of like data analysis and manually looking through my images that I made and this kind of stuff was really mostly annoying. At the same time, I saw that some of my colleagues were were having a completely different attitude towards that and they were enjoying and then they maybe even uh, had some meditative uh, experience in doing this uh, handwork. And I thought, okay, probably this is not part of the job that everyone struggles with. It's probably something which depends on the personality. Uh, and maybe I should look for a job which will not in, make, need me doing research every day. <clears throat> but I still thought um, scientists are cool. They're so interesting and nice people. And science is nice. So it would be great to stay connected to science. Uh, and at the same time, I realized I like to do management administration and surprisingly some administrative tasks, which also seem boring. They were not that bad for me. Like this was kind of boring. I could stand while experiments were really not, not easy to stand. So I thought, okay, maybe something which has to do with organization, administration and so on. And, uh, I was doing this, uh, student consulting for already three years. And I also realized that it was nice to be connected to young scientists, to be able to influence somehow their life, help them. Uh, so overall, it seemed like something which has to do with uh, education, graduate program might be a good fit. And eventually, towards the fourth year, uh, when I knew my contract uh, was like a few months were left, I started applying for jobs. And I found a job unexpectedly fast. Uh, I think there were two reasons. Or first, I can say I, I applied for three jobs. I had two interviews, both were very positive. Uh, and with the second one, we came to the agreement. And with the first one, even though they were generally happy, they actually lacked more German uh, or like more fluent German. And they also wanted someone to start really as soon as possible and I still had a few months in my contract and I didn't want to leave the lab prematurely because I still had something to finish there. Um, so what I think helped me to find a job pretty fast is first of all I knew what I wanted to do and it was a genuine interest. So in my cover letters and in my interviews I could really express why I'm interested in this kind of position. I had relevant experience that I also knew how to present and by the way Nick interestingly you said uh, earlier, something like maybe you have some skills that are required or useful outside of academia. And I think that the truth is that most of PhD students have some skills that are also useful outside of academia. What PhD students often do not know how to do is how to recognize these skills and how to present them. And this is something that you need to learn, but you can learn it. The like, good news is that you can learn and you can uh, learn how to present yourself better. But then I had um, relevant experience uh, also outside of the lab, which was good that they had this organization experience, experience of organizing events. Uh, and what, what I think also helped me is networking because the position that I eventually uh, got into, I learned through someone. 
I did not see the ad, even though it was somewhere on their website um, of the Max Planck, but I didn't really go there. The ad was in German, so maybe I wouldn't even apply to it uh, if I saw it, because usually they say you should apply in the language of the ad. Uh, so it was my luck that I didn't see the ad and that uh, there's someone I was talking to people who work in science management, who do something like this and asking them, uh, how did you get into this job? What do you think is necessary? Did you do any special education? What would you recommend me if I'm interested in this kind of job? And one of the people I was talking to told me I should contact the Impress at um, MPI Biochemistry because I think they have this intern position, which opens every two years or so because this is always limited position. And maybe they are, uh, there will be a chance for you. And I directly contacted my future boss and asked. And apparently the position was open at that time. And um, we had interview and it was very positive. And I took the job. And and then how did your day-to-day -day look like as a scientific coordinator? Because I'm sure most people listening, they will be in academia. They have had probably a graduate school coordinator. But how, what does that look like from the other side? What do you do behind the scenes for, for graduate students? Disclaimer would be that every graduate program is a bit different. And also when we talk about science management, this can be quite different uh, in terms of what exactly you do in a specific job. Uh, one of the positions I applied was actually not a graduate program. It was a, a coordination of the scientific research consortium. And this is also like thing that comes now more, I think. And this coordination requires usually not only training, but also other activities like internal conferences, uh, some kind of uh, meetings of the researchers in this consortium and so on. Uh, but while it might be a bit different, it's also similar in the way that you do similar kind of activities. So what um, the graduate program usually deals with is the application. So they once a year, or maybe sometimes twice a year, depending on the program, they um, announce the um, uh, application time, then they get applications, they evaluate them, they involve professors who also take part in evaluation, then they take part, they organize the interviews, and then they, when the students are selected, the credit program also helps them uh, with as much as they have resources to settle, like come, uh, depending on the place they might have uh, certain um, housing possibilities that they then have to give to students, then they help with paying for some things, organizing some administrative stuff and so on. This will depend on how many resources the specific program has and uh, how the job is defined there. Then the rest of the year, the coordination office is responsible for uh, organizing uh, courses. Uh, courses are usually soft skills, but sometimes not only. It again, depends on the specifics of the program. Maybe you have uh, some kind of board of scientists who you need to consult. Sometimes the graduate program is more independent. Um, then basically you, you uh, work on the curriculum, decide what kind of courses will happen, find people who will teach these courses, find students who will attend, make sure that everything is happening. Uh, then you need to also register all these courses that students attended because they have to fulfill certain uh, attendance criteria or collect certain credit points. Usually this is what you are taking care of also like re registration and keeping up the paperwork. And then probably you also organize some kind of uh, additional meet events like retreats, uh, like small seminars or small inside, inside conferences 
again, depending on the specific program. Some programs also organize a lot of social activities, others, others organize less. Uh, we also had a newspaper in our graduate program, which I was coordinating. I was mostly trying to make it work that students do most of the, the job, but I still they needed co coordination. Um, I think the, the the best coordinators are those who actually ma ma manage to delegate most of work to students. Of course, there is work like official work, administrative paperwork that has to be done by uh, responsible people. But organizing some kind of events, especially social ones, I think it's very good that students take do this. Uh, first, because they can then do things which they really want to and not some weird workshop on whatever that no one really cares about because yeah coordination office might not be very good judge in what exactly is needed and students can do better and then it's the chance for students to develop some additional skills and to try themselves and figure out what they like doing so yeah uh, and if look at the lower level tasks that i would do every day would be a lot of emailing would be talking to different stakeholders, let's call them like administration of the institute, mostly the department, or not departments, but the proper word. Um, yeah, maybe department. It's department in sense of administration department, like finance and uh, travel. This would be my main uh, partners uh, to talk to. Um, Communicate with students, communicate with professors if this was needed, communicate with some uh, with the trainers who deliver courses, communicate with locations about certain events, uh, emails, phones, and filling a lot of paperwork for almost everything. And this was the most uh, frustrating part of the job that um, since we were state funded, we, it's a highly regulated area. And while you totally understand why it's done and you agree that the taxpayers' money should be spent properly and so on and else should be documented, this is still a super boring part of the job. Uh, but uh, it has to be done. And at least some parts were getting better and more and more things what was possible to do online or electronically. That was already a big help because initially, of course, everything was done on paper and that's even worse. Yes, I'm, I'm very familiar with the Max Planck Society's um, administrative hurdles and the sentence, well, but we are getting paid by the German taxpayer. Um, yeah, that is a very popular um, <laughs> argument to use. So then to kind of wrap up your role as a science coordinator, what is your main advice for those or what has been your main advice for those students thinking about opportunities outside of academia? I think I think there are two things you need to do if you're considering a career outside of academia, uh, or maybe three. First one, please consider a career outside academia. And I do definitely recommend this to everyone, even to those who really enjoy research, because research is not only done in academia, it's done also in a commercial sector a lot. And as uh, we discussed earlier, sometimes, uh, if you really want to do research and then you don't want to become a manager of other people, maybe going outside of academia is your way to do this because then you will be able to become an expert, uh, do research and never or manage people to lesser extent than you would do if you become a professor. So this is first. So consider 
start thinking about this and do the other two things. The other two things are first, uh, try to do different stuff if possible to see what you like doing and what you don't and where you have talent and when you, where you don't. Because there are certain, certain activities that you don't really do in academia, but uh, you might be very good at them. Uh, maybe you discover this. Like I discovered I was pretty good at working in the team and I was good at coordinating the team and leading the team, which I probably wouldn't know if I stayed in academia for another 10 years because I would always be a researcher working on my own. Maybe I would have one student or like maybe two students at most, but this is not the same as coordinating a team of 10 people. Uh, and organizing this conference early on uh, in my PhD, I actually discovered that I can coordinate a team. I think we were seven people. I was pretty good at this and um, we did good work and people did not complain and we had a nice atmosphere in the team. Uh, and um, I found that I have certain talent to this. Of course, I'm not saying I was perfect or anything, but I discovered that there's some things that is working and it was also, I enjoyed this as well. So try to do something uh, outside of your lab routine uh, in whatever way is available through your hobbies, through other things you just find interesting to pursue, uh, to discover more about yourself. And second, uh, look what is there outside. So what kind of jobs people do after the kind of PhD you're doing, if you're doing a PhD. Uh, what else is there in what in general is there in the commercial sector or what is there in uh, non-commercial but non-academic sector? Like there is all the governmental part, there are non-profits which uh, work uh, for charitable causes, for example. Mm, just explore what careers are and try to put this against the list of what you enjoy doing where you, where you have talent and see if anything might suit you. Yeah, well, that's what this podcast is for, obviously, <laughs> is uh, to try and highlight yeah. all the different careers and, and hopefully by listening to different experiences, people can identify with what, um, yeah, what really resonates with them, what kind of experience and what kind of thinking resonates with them. Um, okay, so then I want to talk a little bit about your experience in science communication, because there's a lot to be found in your profile there. Of course, we actually met through Pint of Science, more or less. Well, we didn't actually meet in person ever, but um, Not yet. maybe one day. <laughs> Could you tell me a little bit about the different projects that you've been working on? So there's Pint of Science, there is Soapbox, and then I think there's a more recent project that you've been working on also um, in Munich. So what are the differences between those mm -hmm. um, science communication projects? Uh, so all these three projects that I was also, uh, or am involved with, uh, namely Pint of Science, Sobox Science and 15 by 4, they all share some similarities. They are all events. They are all events with talks where people who are experienced or experts in something talk about things they know. Uh, they are much more to science communication, actually, and science outreach and science engagement than just talks. And I think this is also something which is not very maybe known by all scientists, but there are more. If you're not into talking, but you still want to somehow interact with people and show your science, there are other um, ways as well. Uh, and definitely, I encourage you to explore the options if you're interested. 
what is different between these two pro three projects is the the exact format how these talks are delivered. So for a pint of science, it is uh, the idea is that uh, the talks happen in the in the bar in the pub, um, and pint is the British name of the glass for uh, beer, uh, and that's why in Germany we had a lot of jokes that pint is not something that people would say in Germany; uh, they would say fast or something. Um, and it's an international uh, festival of science. That's what they call it. It happens every year uh, during three certain days. This year it's all all different everywhere because of the circumstances everyone knows about. But in the previous year, it was always three days in May uh, from Wednesday to, sorry, from Monday to Wednesday, where in the evening there will be events with talks from scientists and where general public is invited to join and listen and ask questions and communicate with scientists. And it's an international project originating from the UK. Uh, Solbox Science is also an international project originating from the UK. Uh, I would also call it something like a festival more or less or a science communication event. Uh, it usually happens on one day per year, uh, but in different cities on a different dates and cities uh, on their own to decide when exactly it happens, usually during summer or during at least warm time of the year, uh, because it has to happen outside in some public place which is easily accessible by people. This is often a park or a maybe square. And in Munich, it happened in uh, two previous years. It happened at the Adionsplatz for people from Munich who have been to Munich. Uh, you definitely know this place, a very popular and famous place. And the idea on the soapbox science is that there is a chance to involve people who wouldn't normally go to a science communication event. So with a point of science, people have to be interested in science communication to recognize the event, to maybe see, uh, be checking themselves what kind of events happen in this direction, and then they would come. But uh, Soapbox Science allows people just passing by to see something interesting is happening and stop by and listen and be engaged. And it's also directed more to the like family level, would say. So it should be accessible by kids as well. And uh, speakers are encouraged to bring uh, more illustrations or prompts that would help people also engage. People maybe can touch something uh, and so on, interact with. Um, the way event looks like is uh, there are four small stages, so-called soapboxes. And again, there is some, it's a term that comes from the UK originally and that people outside of UK don't really get. Uh, the, this story is based on the Hyde Park where people would put, um, there was a special corner where people would put a soapbox, like this was just a um, wooden box where the soap would normally be sold in apparently. They would climb on this box and tell something to, to other people and people can stop by and listen. And this can be artists like, I don't know, poets delivering their poems or maybe political activists, they want to uh, tell something and so on. And here, uh, scientists climb on the soap boxes. There are four soap boxes uh, located in, in the area and each has one scientist on it who stays there for uh, one hour and delivers a short talk, but uh, also mostly answers questions from people uh, and tries to interact with those who come close. And there are uh, three rounds of that. Uh, so 
in total uh, 12 scientists present. Um, an additional feature of Softbox Science is that it is uh, to uh, showcase female scientists, so all the speakers are female. Um, yeah, and I learned about this uh, project in, in Berlin. I met some people who organized Softbox Science in Berlin for the first time. And I thought it's a very cool because this open open space involving people who would be normally interested felt like a really cool idea to me. And then I uh, came back to Munich and found some people in my circles who were interested in this as well. And we organized the first Soapbox Science in 2018, I guess. And then I left the team and the team continued doing this. And this year they also uh, did a combination of online and offline uh, things. Yes. And the last project uh, I am currently working on where I'm coordinating the Munich team is called 15 by 4. Uh, the name comes originally from the format. It's four talks of 15 minutes. So pretty short, but also long enough to really tell some kind of story. Uh, and talks should be about topics um, in science, technology, uh, humanities, or something else which is empirical knowledge. So people often ask me, oh, is it like TEDx or TED? Uh, and I say, no, it's much better <laughs> because we don't have the motivational blah, blah stories that people say, you know, one day I woke up and I understood everything about my life and I will tell you now. But it's really talking about knowledge. So the motto of 15 by 4 is share your knowledge and you should share the empirical knowledge that is uh, acquired in the empirical way usually from uh, research or experiments. Uh, there, what is different? Um, yeah, this it has a bit of this different format. Where it happens can be, depends on the local team. Uh, it can happen also in some uh, bar or pub or something, but in Munich it was always happening in a more lecture-like audience uh, where people would sit um, and there is a stage and someone uh, is delivering talks there. What we do really differently and what I'm very proud of is that we invest a lot of time in preparing speakers, in really helping speakers make understandable talks. And this is something which I miss in many other science communication projects which have to do with lectures is preparation of speakers. Because in most cases, scientists uh, or engineers or people really Possessing all this knowledge, they are really bad in transferring this knowledge. And you need to help them to see how this can be explained in simpler terms, how they are sometimes assuming too much pre-existing knowledge from the audience, which actually should be explained. And it's amazing how great their results can be. And I think you can always judge the quality of the talk by the quality of the questions that gets afterwards if the questions are really good and to the point and really like pinpoint some important um, questions or concerns connected to this topic it means people really understood what the talk was about and I think we are uh, very well in, in, in doing this um, we prepare our speakers for the whole month before the, uh, the event so it's quite a lot of time and effort invested but I think it always pays off and I also hope that through this, our speakers develop at least a bit more of this skill of being able to explain and present to general public 
and I hope this also helps them further on in their future talks, uh, even when they talk to other people. Yeah, that you kind of took away my next question because that's what I was. That's more or less what I was going to ask. Like, what is what are the challenges of of working with academic scientists and you know, what can they learn? But we more or less now already discussed that. So then in terms of the organization of the different um, projects, because you had different roles, right? Uh, but what is special about coordinating point of science is this is a yearly event, which only lasts for three days. And I would say this is actually a, not a huge effort for the local team to organize. There is work to do, uh, but it's mostly clustered around the event time and maybe half a year before it's time when you need to find speakers and locations and stuff. And also for the um, national team, it's also the effort is kind of very much spread throughout the year and there are months when you don't have to do anything. Um, so in this sense, um, on one hand, it was kind of relaxed. On the other hand, also, this was a mid problematic for me because I couldn't really feel how we are doing this because it was so spread throughout. Uh, Soapbox Science is also once a year, uh, but each city is doing it on the, on their own uh, with a small communication with the main uh, team in the UK. Mm, and there it's basically as if you work in a small, in a small team. Um, with usually it's five, seven, maybe up to 10 people in the city. You don't really need more because again, it's not a huge event. And uh, 15 by four was a very different experience and very interesting. And eventually I figured that was the most interesting for me in terms of uh, management experience and what I was doing. That's why I eventually decided to not be involved anymore with other projects and to dedicate all my time to 15 by four. Uh, 15 by four events, uh, they don't have a, I, I, what I forgot to mention, by the way, this is a, um, a organization with Russian roots. Uh, it's uh, or Russian speaking roots, I would rather say. Um, it originates from Ukraine. Uh, it was developed there in 2015, I believe. And then it spread to many Ukrainian cities and to some Russian cities. And it was mostly, the events were mostly held in Russian and in Ukrainian then. And then it also came to Moldova. And then after a while, it came to Munich. And it was originally also a Russian-speaking event. And I joined it for the first time as a Russian-speaking event. But quite soon, we realized that we, if we do it in English, it would be more fun because then we will have more speakers available, more audience, and more uh, the audience that is really interested in science communication and not just Russian-speaking events. And um, there was no, uh, this is very decentralized organization, unlike Pint of Science, for example. There is no real headquarters. And everyone, like each, each city is welcome to do stuff as they wish. And they can decide what is the cadence of the events. And in Munich, we wanted to do events quite often. So eventually, we ended up in doing events every month, except the summer which means there was always work to do it. Always, it's like ongoing event series, meaning we work really like uh, an organization which works all the time with maybe like a summer break. And this meant we had to have a more, um, more complex structure. We also have much many more people. We have around 25 people in the team now who are divided into sub-teams that do their own parts of the things. 
and we had more other interesting questions like how to find partners with whom we can work together, how to find always speakers and interesting speakers, how to prepare them well, we just already discussed. Um, and uh, really my role ended up being something like a, let's say small CEO, uh, because this, I mean, 25 people is a size of, that many startups don't even have. It's quite a big organization. Um, and the interesting and tricky part of it is also that it's volunteer, so no one is getting paid. I cannot motivate people by promising them raise or anything. Uh, I cannot like motivate them by taking away something from them because there is no uh, really financial, financial things involved. And uh, this was very interesting challenge for me, how we can maintain an organization and a culture where people would be interested, motivated to work at the same time that they will also feel responsible that if they agree to do something that other people rely on them. And it continues to be challenging. This is not the challenge that you can solve, but that's why it's, it's also interesting to work in this project. Yeah, that's true. I I also worked as a volunteer a lot and I worked with volunteers a lot. And it's exactly as you described, like it's really hard to, on the one hand, you cannot ask them to do too much because it's voluntary work. But if they agree to do something, you need to be able to rely on them to actually do what they said they would do. Um, and that's sometimes quite a challenge. Um, so then in terms of other challenges that come with science communication, um, one thing that I, in my experience, also um, have noticed and what you mentioned is that all these different projects are very tailored to reaching different audiences, right? And reaching an audience is, is one of the challenges with science communication because you want to reach as wide an audience as possible. But then, first of all, in Germany, also language is a problem because if you have an English-speaking event, you will reach mostly English-speaking people. You're not going to find the grandma from the from the Münsterplatz who will join your event. And also the way that you tailor it, like Pint of Science is more or less in a pub, so you have a certain audience that is attracted to that. And um, so it's, it's quite interesting. Whereas with your soapbox... Uh, initiative it's really anyone who walks past can can kind of be exposed to it so that is that is quite interesting to see but then could you comment finally a little bit on what do you think is the main benefit of of science communication as a whole and how do these different projects kind of contribute i am mm, a person who is who believes in uh, value of small things that combined add value and I think uh, it is very good if you find space and time and um, like additional I don't know money finance or something in your life to do something good for the society uh, but you first of all should only do this when you actually have this available space and you should also do something which corresponds to what you want to do so this should be an intersection of uh, what you enjoy doing because by doing something you enjoy, you can actually make a difference. And I mostly do uh, science communication because I enjoy doing that. With, with these projects that I'm working in, I don't fool myself that I can make a huge difference and change and educate everyone and so on. And these projects, all of these three are not really to educate 
this grandma, they will not work. And for grandmas, you need a different approach. And I just don't really know how to do this. And I also feel this is more difficult than what I can currently invest in. Still, I think also this things that we do have a value. Um, I think, first of all, we help to bridge the gap between scientists and um, educated people uh, of the same age, let's say. So we are mostly, our speakers are mostly young scientists, uh, I would say between, I don't know, 25 to 50. And our audience is the same, just people who are not working in research, who but who are genuinely interested. And we help them meet each other because they both are a bit separated circles that don't often overlap. And I think this is beneficial for both sides. So first of all, scientists uh, get a lot of it from it because they see their gratitude of people, that people really value the, the research scientists do. And I would also recommend to all the PhD students to at some point present their project to general public and see how the eyes light up and how they say, wow, this is so cool. Um, and this is so great that you are doing this and that someone is trying to solve this question. Um, so I think there is a lot of value for scientists in that, that they can actually feel this uh, positive feedback from the general public, that they see that general public does value what they do, even that sometimes it's not really visible in their salaries, but that's just how the system is arranged. Then they can also, yeah, learn uh, how to present themselves and how to present what they do to general people. And this is of more practical um, practical use for their future. And what why it's good for the general audience is, um, again, bridging the gap, showing who scientists are, uh, that scientists are normal people. And I think it's important to realize for many reasons, including the reason that scientists are sometimes wrong. And it's nothing to say bad about scientists just because they're also humans and they can make mistakes. What is important is that they try to uh, address these mistakes as soon as possible. And also it's a chance for people to ask the questions that they might be really worried or curious about, but they didn't have a chance to talk to an expert. And for example, we had some we had some hot topics in our 15 by 4 talks. For example, there was a um, talk about uh, CRISPR babies, which was a very hot topic like a year or two years ago. And we felt it was important to talk about this, to really explain people what it is. Because if you don't understand, you are mostly just scared. But when you are informed and you understand what's happening, that you can make a more informed uh, decision about things. And also, um, yeah, and I think also just generally making uh, people more informed is a way to slowly move our world to more, to better decisions for the society. Again, I don't fool myself that we can inform everyone. Um, we have a limited uh, audience with a specific uh, type of people, but it's also, it's better to deliver to them than to don't deliver to anyone. And I'm also, I also know that there are people who work in to, with other audiences and I'm so grateful that they do that. And one of the important audiences, for example, kids 
school children, educating them about science and research, what they can do there, what does it mean, and so on. I personally have no experience. I don't really know how to do that, but there are so many great events or other organizations, which is very good. Yeah. And then I think, yeah, because the children are more or less a similar sort of category as the grandma from the Münsterplatz, it's the same thing where you cannot easily do it in a different language except for the language that they already speak. So mm, there's always challenges involved there. So then in terms of, uh, so for people who are also interested in organizing these kinds of projects uh, related to science communications, how do you usually finance these projects? There's a lot of sponsoring going on, but there there's usually also a pot of money. Where does that money come from and, and how do you allocate it? I would say if you're part of uh, some kind of uh, academic institution at the moment, for you, it is not difficult. Honestly, this is not difficult. Uh, there are always money inside of your organization, which are supposed to be spent for something which has to do with science outreach. There are money in other local organizations that do with research that have to be spent there. And depending on the country, there are probably also other funds, um, uh, private or state funds that can also spend certain amount of money on science communication and i think the situation was only improving in the recent years like there were more and more these opportunities appearing and also in germany and some other european countries there are even um some competitions where you can apply with the idea of your project and get money like there are for example competitions from the eu for uh, different science communication projects and um sometimes you have to be affiliated with certain academic organization to do that uh, to apply, but not always. Uh, and but to start with, I would just ask around in your where you work and in the other research organizations. And for example, so Box Science in Munich is mostly or maybe completely is sponsored by academic um, funds. It's thousands euros here, thousands there, but then you need only a certain amount of money. You're not making profit, of course, with this. I just need to pay for things that are necessary. And then uh, it's pretty easy to fund. Uh, more tricky is if you have bigger events uh, that require more money and if you are actually not affiliated with any academic institution anymore. Like with 15 by 4 we are none of the organizers um, works at the institution, um, at the academic institution, so it's not easy for us to ask money from them. Mm, and we need to find money from uh, private sponsors. And unfortunately, I cannot say that we were super successful in this. Um, we are very uh, badly funded, but this was not a huge problem so far. So again, uh, it's important to manage your appetite, I guess, um, decide what is necessary, what is not. And we were quite successful in finding partners who would give us, for example, locations for free. And even uh, Deutsches Museum, which is the biggest science, science uh, technology museum in the world and is very famous, uh, was happy to host us for free uh, because we could explain what is the value in this for them. Uh, and they were um, happy with the outcomes also. So this win-win often works. 
uh, and then approaching organizations which are uh, either interested in connecting to scientists and improving their image uh, in the eyes of scientists, namely organizations or like companies that sell something to scientists often are interested in supporting these kind of activities, or organizations which want to have um, um, a connection to the kind of audience you have. And again, depending on the, what, what your event is like, there might be different audiences. And for example, 15 by 4, we have uh, a lot of IT people coming. And this is why we were quite good in making collaborations or partnerships with IT companies, because they said, cool, if you can add, mention us and say that we are recruiting in this and these areas, um, to your audience, which seems to be really very relevant to us, uh, we can give you something for that. Yeah, that's that's very helpful to know for anyone who wants to organize uh, science communication events. Now you know. And then in terms of organizations that actually sell things to scientists, let's move on to one of your more recent, like actually paid jobs. Um, so you were an application specialist for Neurotar. Can you explain a little bit, like, how did you end up in this job and, and what does the job entail? Yeah. Mm, so I started this job uh, one and a half years after I left the lab. So was, for these one and a half years, I worked in this uh, impress coordination office and I was going to stay actually longer because my contract was for two years. Uh, but it wasn't possible to prolong it because this is a special position, which is like a training position for science um, management. So I knew by the end of two years, uh, I should be having something else. Uh, but I wasn't, uh, but event, in the end, I left a bit even earlier uh, because I got offered this position. And I was exactly offered without even proactively asking for it. First of all, because I wasn't looking yet. And second of all, I got lucky, but I got lucky because of the network. And I can only repeat myself and say networking is really helpful for getting a job. And it is actually everywhere. Also in academia, this is also true. Uh, for getting good jobs, uh, it's good to know people, and also for non-academia, it works the same. Uh, Neuratar is a, a pretty small company uh, located in Finland, and they make uh, very specialized equipment for uh, neurobiologists. And this is equipment which is, uh, I wasn't lucky enough to use in my PhD, but I wanted to. However, my professor did not, wasn't convinced at that point, so we I went on without it, but um, I, I did the kind of experiments that were connected with this equipment. So I was, uh, my uh, background was very relevant. Moreover, uh, I knew the founder of the company for quite some years, and this was from still my university years. I met him when I went to certain student program in, in Helsinki. Uh, I met him and we kind of stayed in touch. Uh, at some point, uh, we discussed maybe our lab buys the equipment, but we didn't. Another time was that I convinced them to sponsor our PhD uh, symposium, which was maybe a good show of my uh, sales skills, which I didn't really have yet then, but I had something. Um, and um, yeah, and at some point uh, he was visiting some clients in Munich and we met and he was asking about my research, uh, my career, what I'm planning to do after this uh, impress position. 
And I said that I was interested in to go into something uh, business uh, related. So work in the commercial sector to understand more about this. And apparently they were going to expand. They wanted to recruit more people at this point. And uh, um, yeah, I was invited for an interview. Uh, like, yeah, without uh, any official application, but they said we have this kind of position, something about application science. So it was not very clear, even when I went to the interview, what the position will be. Uh, but I came anyways. I talked to uh, to the CEO of the company. I talked to other future colleagues or potential colleagues. And since everyone was very happy with this, and I thought this also is a good chance, uh, why not take it? I wanted to work in the commercial sector. Uh, my position would entail working with scientists, which was good. Uh, it would be mm, not research, but something else. It would be sales, uh, marketing. Um, and I knew a bit of marketing. I didn't know much about sales, but I always heard that sales is a great way to start your uh, commercial career because you understand so much from doing this. So I thought overall it seems like a good job. And uh, I signed the contract. I um, uh, terminated my contract with the, at Max Planck Institute. And then I worked in Neurotar for 11 months. Um, first one and a half months I spent in Helsinki to learn uh, in being in the office. And afterwards, I worked remotely, so from home or either going to clients because there was quite uh, some traveling involved. Uh, we went to to conference uh, in the U.S. Um, for, to present our equipment. I was going to visit some potential clients. I was visiting some current clients. Uh, yeah, uh, and unfortunately, this job ended because of uh, Corona. Uh, I mentioned that the Neurotar is a very small company and it, it was a very um, bad financial burden for it uh, to go into lockdown and that all the institutions we were working with and we were selling mostly to the academic institutions, they all went in quarantine and just everything froze. So there was no income for the company and then uh, they decided to terminate my contract. Uh, and this happened and so effectively from May, I, I wasn't employed there anymore. Uh, what my job, uh, what my job was about uh, was, as I already mentioned, communicating with current clients. So I was responsible for all the European clients uh, in the European continent, except the UK. Uh, and I was just getting in touch with clients and checking how they are, giving advice if something is needed or if they have questions, how to use something. Uh, I was then looking for new clients with either uh, cold emails or uh, if they were contacting us ourselves, I would follow up with them and figure out what they need, if there's something that they would be interested in. And I was uh, going to the um, either these conferences or organizing myself kind of um, roadshows where I would decide, okay, I go to a certain uh, city, I would find labs that look uh, like those who might be interested in our equipment, I would contact them and say, I'm coming, do you want to see the equipment? And then uh, those who are interested, I would arrange the visits to the labs and show them what we have. And uh, another part of my job was uh, a bit of digital marketing. So I was taking care of our social media, of Twitter, of uh, LinkedIn and Facebook, 
uh, deciding what to post there and also looking for interesting leads for potential clients uh, in social media. Do you think this social media um, nowadays it's becoming quite important, right, for for companies and and organizations, basically for anyone? I see a lot of scientists on Twitter also. Um, I personally am not very skilled and not very interested in using social media, but I realize that I, especially for this podcast, for instance, have to start doing it more seriously. So, what do you think the impact is there? Like, how can you best use social media um, for these kinds of purposes? Social media is definitely helpful and it's, I don't, I don't know, it's not like it's growing or something. It's more, it exists, it has its own place and you can either use its benefits or you can do nothing about that. Uh, of course, to use the benefits, you need to uh, invest effort and it's not like it comes with no cost. Of course, you, some, if you have limited resource, you need to make a decision what you invest most time in and most effort in and this should be where you can get the most results. So uh, for my work in Uratar, um, social media was not the main time investment because there you need more effort to get some results. And also it needs some time to grow until you will start getting the benefits. Um, but mostly, uh, and again, it depends also uh, who are the clients of the company. And for us, we knew scientists, uh, and when you and neuroscientist and neuroscience has a very lively community on Twitter, for example, so Twitter was definitely a good platform to to reach out, and that's why I think uh, Twitter is actually a good platform for most life scientists uh, because most of the areas has some lively community there, and you can really get good exposure, good support, and I think what is special about Twitter is this is the only place where you can online reach to really high people. The other place would be a real like real life conference where you can of course come to anyone and ask and have a discussion and so on. But uh, if off online, this is the only place I think. Writing emails to professors, like pff, never get a reply, right? Mm, especially if you have something like more vague you want to discuss or like, have questions about the paper they will rarely reply in the best case they will forward your email to to the postdoc or PhD student but on twitter there are professors who are very active and they do engage a lot uh, in the communication with other people there so i think this is really valuable resource uh, especially if you are not very fortunate in the place where you currently are if you don't have much exposure to international community and but you want to have it definitely twitter is something that will help you uh, for scientists, I think this is the most important social media. Uh, LinkedIn and like Facebook would not really help you much. Uh, the same as ResearchGate. I would say ResearchGate and LinkedIn is good to have your profile and uh, keep it updated. It, and it works more like your business card that people can understand who you are, what you do. But uh, communication there is not happening so much in the research. If you are uh, some you have some other project like science communication or commercial, then you need to think where your audience mostly is. And for some projects that would be Facebook and others, Instagram and some Twitter and some LinkedIn actually, like some business oriented uh, topics are much more influential in LinkedIn. 
for example, now with my current job, I organize uh, we or we uh, organize a community of product managers and we have regular meetups. And LinkedIn is the place where we get the most uh, engagement from people. And this is where we try to invest most time to advertise our events and to communicate with our audience. Yeah, well, I'll I'll try to keep those tips in mind and everyone else who wants to engage with scientists or otherwise uh, can do the same. So then you mentioned your your latest job that you haven't had for for that long. Um, first of all, you mentioned you lost your job because of, of Corona. And, and how did you kind of manage that? How did you spring into action to find your current job? So I was quite lucky to be in Germany for losing a job. That's one of the reasons why I like being in Germany, that the social system here is good uh, and it's stable. And even this, that's kind of unexpected events like this Corona crisis did not shake it too much. And um, maybe some people complain that government wasn't fast enough or something, but I think it was in the circumstance, under the circumstance, it was good enough. Uh, also, uh, one of the things is when you are getting fired it's usually at least one month that you get uh, until your contract so i learned that i will be uh, fired in april and i had another month that i would be fully paid for um and it was also enough time for me to sort out the bureaucratic stuff like applying for um arbeitslosengeld so for unemployment money and i think the arbeitsamt or the agentur für arbeit this is the correct word for it like the um, employment agency uh, was very um, efficient I think again under the circumstances they moved all the processes online they made it uh, possible to register uh, in the situation with as minimum effort as possible so also this worked out unexpectedly super fast um, and even though of course the un unemployment money are not crazy money but they were they usually 60% of your salary uh, and then also the insurance money is deducted from it. But it, it's good. It was good enough to cover all my uh, necessary expenses. So again, I was not too crazy stressed knowing that uh, I will not end up on the streets or something. Another good thing was that I got my permanent residence permit a few months before that which also solved many problems for me as a foreigner uh, that I, again, I could stay in Germany legally with no additional problems. I mean, in my situation, I could have also applied for residence permits based on getting the unemployment money, but that would be additional bureaucratic, not a struggle, but time and effort. So I was lucky, lucky not needed to do that. But again, in Germany, I think the the laws are very reasonable. And if you spend some time here working, then probably you can sort everything out and you, you will get help. So um, <clears throat> honestly, I was thinking that maybe I take some time, several months off and really do nothing. But, but this was psychologically pretty difficult. Um, because I never, I never was unemployed before. I went straight from my university to my PhD, from a PhD to my first job, and then to another job. And now this feeling that I kind of, 
I don't know what my job is was a bit difficult. And somehow most of the people with whom I talked, they were, you know, they kept asking me, so how was job search? And people will always assume that I would be looking for a job. Uh, so it was, this part was a bit tricky. But uh, what I did, I was not actively looking for a job, but I was actively thinking what I want to do next. So in my previous, uh, in the sales application science specialist position, I liked some things, but there were things I didn't like so much. And uh, I had the jobs before, so I was doing this evaluation. The ones I gave as an advice, right? Think what you liked, what you didn't, what was working well. Uh, try to see where the talents are that you can then apply this to the job. So I was doing this thinking and um, learning also more what kind of positions are available in the commercial sector, what they are called. And after some weeks of research, I figured that maybe product manager is the position that I would like. Uh, from description, I understood this is a person, the product manager is a person who manages the discovery, development, and delivery of the product. So basically, if you have whatever in our life and we have uh, everything is around us is some kind of product, also services are product. Uh, the job of product manager will be to understand what exactly do people need, how it should look like, what features should it have, how do we make it happen, uh, in which um, order should we work on this, and how we help people use it in a proper way, how we make it easy for them to use, how do we find the people who need it. Uh, like All this is connected under this umbrella of product management. Uh, I still have some open questions, like how much uh, can I do product management in something which is science-related? I didn't really know that. Uh, I was thinking also, do I really want to do something which is research? I never really wanted to work, for example, in pharmaceutical industry. So I think, okay, what, what else is there? And what I did, I subscribed to, um, to ads uh, in LinkedIn with the positions and was just checking what kind of companies have this position called product manager, what do they write in the description, was also trying to figure out how good my German has to be. So my German is still not great. I mean, seven years in the country doesn't help, as many people probably will <laughs> agree with me, because I never worked in a professional German. I worked in English. I needed to use some German in my impress work to communicate to uh, Buchhaltung, like finance department and so on. But it was mostly to make people feel better about our communication. Like Germans appreciate if you try. Um, they were very patient with my broken German that I made a lot of grammar mistakes. Um, and I think they still enjoyed it more than if we'd spoken English. So I did this for them, but my German was still not professional. And I was also, so by looking at this, um, Ads, job ads, I was trying to figure out what is the market like. Do I need to like now do invest time and money into improving my German or should I just try with English? Uh, where the play, where cities where I can find job and so on. Uh, and simultaneously, I was investing a bit of more time in my side projects and I started a course about product management just to get an overview of what it is like and know a bit the jargon. I think this is one important thing. When you figure out what you want to do, you don't have to know everything, how it's done, but it's good if you know the jargon and you can talk to people, understand what they're asking, and present the experience and skills you have in the appropriate way. 
And um, maybe a couple weeks into this whole thing, I saw an advertisement for um, for internship position, which was unpaid. Um, but it kind of description sounded interesting. I liked the logo of the company. Uh, the title was interesting. It was called Product People. I thought, well, something about people is good. Um, and what I did, uh, I found the founder of the company on LinkedIn and wrote to her if she would have a time for a short interview, like information interview that I asked her a bit of product management. I basically wrote, I recently was checking what I wrote for. I wrote something like, I'm fascinated with your experience, extensive experience in product management. I'm thinking to switch into this area myself. Would you have a bit of time that I can ask you a bit? How would you recommend to do this? And uh, she agreed. And I asked her a bit general questions. And at the end of, we had only 15 minutes, even less maybe. And I asked her about this internship position. I told her a bit about myself, of course, in the beginning. And I asked her if she thought that internship position that she has might be something where I could be suitable, knowing that I have no specific experience in product management. And also my experience is more academic related than uh, this commerce. And she said, well, if you find it interesting, you can apply. And then you will need to do a certain task. And uh, she sent me the task. I looked at the task and thought, whoa, I'm not getting this job or this unpaid job. <laughs> because this was a question of the jargon in many ways. Because there were questions which you know the words, but you're like wondering what exactly do they mean. For example, there was a question, what kind of experiments did you do? And I was sure they don't mean the experiments I did in the lab, right? So there was some kind of other experiments that I needed to present. But anyways, I did it as good as I could with um, the knowledge uh, I had by that moment. And uh, uh, then I got another short call with her and another short call with a, a friend of hers who was helping her at the moment to review people just to get an external perspective. And they both were pretty satisfied with what they heard. And she said, okay, uh, I'm happy to take you on this uh, unpaid position if this works for you. I said, yeah, unpaid is fine. Uh, remember, I was lucky enough to be in Germany that my basic expenses would be covered. I thought also doing an internship is the best way to check if this is something I like. Uh, at least I don't pay anything for this. Uh, and probably if I like it, at the end of three months, I have at least a bit of experience that I can later on use uh, to get other job. Uh, if I don't like it, that's great if I figure it now before I invest a lot of time to get this kind of job and then figure out it's not working for me. So I thought overall this was a great opportunity. It was starting from the middle of May. So exactly when my contract finished uh, officially with Neurotar, I started this internship. Uh, what didn't work is that I was hoping to get some free time and rest, but this didn't work out. <laughs> well, then maybe uh, sometime later, or as we say, we sleep after we die. So that's what happened. And I, like two months in, uh, I was uh, still happy with what I was doing. It was very interesting. I learned a lot of new stuff. I also was lucky to get a lot of attention from my boss. I was basically the first intern she uh, she recruited. She just started her company last year and it's um, as an agency. So she was simultaneously looking for new clients and um, looking for people to join. But she was 
didn't have so much money yet to pay really good. So she needed people who would uh, be fine to start with junior positions. And then two months in, I was interested and my boss was happy with my performance. Mm, yeah, interestingly enough, uh, even though I didn't have much experience in this specific job, after I understood the vocabulary and after I learned a bit more of how things are working, I could already deliver some, something. And I think this is at least one thing that you usually take away from your research experience is that you learn how to get into new subject, understand it, and you also are ready for responsibilities, I think. When you finish a PhD, you were responsible for something for quite a while, and at least you know that some, you need to take responsibility. And sometimes, if no one can explain you how to do stuff, you will go and try figure on your own. Um, so yeah, two, two months in, she said, I'm happy. If uh, Let's do this one last month of unpaid internship, and if everything is still fine, then uh, I will offer you a contract. And with this, from the 1st of September, I'm officially employed there as an associate product manager. Uh, still very junior position, but again, this is uh, it's tricky to get a more senior position without having this kind of title uh, in your CV before. So I think it's uh, it's a good deal. Uh, the salary uh, is a little bit lower than I had in my previous place because there I had bonuses from sales and here I don't currently have it. Uh, but I do honestly like the job a bit more than what I did before. Uh, I like uh, my boss. Uh, we have a couple more colleagues right now, uh, which are also good. And I'm quite happy. Explaining what I do though would be a bit tricky, I think, because this is exactly the place where jargon kicks in and I either need to give a really detailed explanation or I will just talk Pigeon language uh, to make it short and still a bit understandable is uh, we help companies solve different kind of questions around the development of the product. And this usually happens either because they want to do something new they, they haven't done before. Maybe they want to add a new, new feature to their product um, or they want to explore a new avenue or new market or something. And then they don't want to hire a new person inside of the company, but what they want is an external help from the agency. Uh, or they have certain struggles, like they do something for a while already and they can, don't, cannot figure out how to do this and they need some external perspective. And we work with companies from very different sectors. We currently have um, three big clients. Uh, one in, is in real estate, one in logistics of food, and one is in cybersecurity. And the products that we work with, what the product is, is also a bit different. They all kind of digital related, but to a different extent. And this was also super fun for me to learn more about different uh, commercial sectors, all that just different industries, how they work and what kind of things are important there that I would never guess without really getting into the research there. Hmm. I mean, that was quite a, a long and detailed story already about your journey to become a project manager until now. Um, so then in terms of during those last few months when you started um, as an intern and now you became a product manager for real mm -hmm. for now, 
Um, what was one of the main learning moments that you had? Like what, I don't want to call it a challenge because I think learning can be perceived as a challenge, but eventually you'll probably overcome it. So what was one of the main learning moments, one of the main things that you were like, oh, okay, yeah, no, this I didn't know. And now I kind of see what they mean by it or mm. what they, yeah, what is meant. This is something quite specific for this role, but also might be important for some positions with a similar power balance, I would say. So the trick of product manager is that even though it says you're a manager, you're not a manager of anyone. You're a manager of the product, which is an animate object. And all the people, like people in the company usually don't report to you. You are more like advisor who has to give good advice and to convince people and get buy-ins from others. And what is important in this job and that I see as a kind of challenge because I still need to learn more about this, but I kind of started to understand slowly how it works. You really need to get to get into feeling of what is happening in the company. It's especially important if you work like an agency that you are not constantly in one place, but you are switching from few months that you are one place, another month you somewhere else. Um, you need to understand what's the power balance, uh, whose word is important, whose word is will be disregarded, uh, who is reporting to whom, and what is the, um, the feeling, while also understanding what is the main thing that the company is doing and what they have they should go, and find a way to create some balance and understand sometimes you unfortunately will have to sacrifice something of the quality because some things will not work uh, in the current situation. But um, at the same time, do try to convince people to go into the good direction. I think I, I thought I kind of had this kind of feeling a bit already because of the uh, 15 by four and working in volunteer organizations when again, I couldn't really control people, even though I was kind of higher hierarchy because I was a, a manager or coordinator, whatever you call it, still I had to convince people to do stuff for the, from their own will. And here it's similar, but here it is more on, on stake because it's commercial world, commercial world. And if we don't earn money because I did not do something or I did a mistake, then people suffer. Um, so, Definitely what I have to learn now is a kind of more complex level of this communication. So it's basically specifics of communication in this kind of role. This is something which is challenging, which I am learning, but I think I already understood what is at least the, the ideal situation, how it should be in our questions, how I develop myself to be able to deliver there. Well, it's, it's great that you already figured that out because I think sometimes that takes quite a while to to see and at least you you can make a plan from where you are now. So so that's I think great. probably there is something there's probably something hiding behind that, you know, it's usually how it goes. You find a challenge, you kind of conquer it and then you discover that there is a one maybe bigger one or more complex one that you didn't even see before because you just didn't know stuff. Right. While you were climbing the first mountain, you couldn't yeah, see the second exactly. one. <laughs> yeah. 
So one thing that I was thinking about earlier today while preparing for this interview is really something that I personally struggle with a little bit is that the classic um, idea in, let's say, a career is really that people need to be specialist and being a generalist is kind of frowned upon. And in your case, right, you are becoming a bit of a generalist because you've been doing so many different things. Um, where And my question is really, did you do these things or are you doing all these different things to eventually find the one job and the one career that you want to stay in? Or do you think that you are the kind of person who is for the rest of their life going to do many different things? <laughs> That's a very interesting question. Um, I think I'm the second. I'm probably the person who will always do different stuff. I'm also kind of a bit scared already for my future and that in five years, I think product management, well, it was fun, but time for something else. I have no idea what something else will be. And I think it is a personality trait. And I think it's not a good idea to tell that either one or another is better, that people either should be specialists or they should be generalists. And while I think for a long time, the specialist was regarded as the better way, Recently, it's shifting towards the other side and people start saying, well, everyone needs social skills. This is what will be important in the future and blah, blah. Uh, I think this is still personality. You, It's very important to embrace your personality and not try to fight it because then you will just be miserable. However successful you might be on the front, if you are not satisfied with what you do, not happy, that will be really sad. Mm. And if you are more of a specialist person, you really like to be expert in something, then this is the direction you should be going to. Of course, it doesn't mean you can like be blind and just believe that if you know something very deeply, this will stay your, your bread and butter forever. This probably will not work because technology is developed inevitably and you need to adapt. But probably there is always some pivot that you can take from where you are now to something close which is more developed and like follow the technologies kind of or if you are very good maybe you can even be a bit upfront and prepare for the next stage even before people around you realize well you're an expert eventually in this field um unfortunately i'm or maybe not unfortunately i'm not the person who can be an expert let's say yeah i'm also kind of judging <laughs> mm. I'm not an expert. I get bored when I become expert in something. I can, but then I'm getting bored and I just want to do something else. Um, and that's why I was always, at some point, I think I started embracing it more and more. And I started following my interest and always trying to find a job that I would be enjoy doing. And that would always give me growth in certain skills that maybe lead me further to something else. Also, I'm not blind. I'm not just thinking, okay, I now do this and whatever happens in the future doesn't matter. Let's just do stuff that I like. Uh, no, I always, I try to make a balance. I also um, keep open eyes and open minds to see what else is there and try to yeah prepare kind of for what's coming next for example i was working in the uh, impress and after a bit 
evaluating what's happening, I realized maybe I don't want to really stay in academia, even though there are many places which are not research, but there are some things that I felt were a bit um, limiting for me. Again, it's my personality trait. It's not that for everyone this will be the same. Some people really find their special specialization there can become experts in this and they like build programs for the whole of their life they work on this and they are very good but this wasn't something for me and then i started to kind of preparing what for what's coming next by looking what else is there thinking what kind of other skills i can develop that would help me to find something interesting afterwards so in all cases you need to be open-minded and realistic uh, but also knowing your personality and doing things that make you feel satisfied, not necessarily super incredibly happy, but satisfied with what you do the majority of time. Also, I cannot promise you will always be happy. There always will be some crap that you need to do, but the majority of time you should be satisfied with things you're doing. Yeah, that's some some very good advice for everyone to keep in mind. And I think that will be very useful, at least even for me in the future to to think about, um, because I couldn't agree more with you. I think I'm also a little bit more of a of a generalist, um, so I can really identify with what you just said. Um, so then kind of my final question will more or less be. What kind of advice would you give your academic self? So when you were in your PhD, what kind of advice would you want to project back into the into the past um, to keep yourself going? Well, you made it here anyway, so. Yeah, I'm, I'm kind of wondering. I, I did not do such a bad job. I was it's pretty good. <laughs> there are some things which I wish I would have done differently. Um, and sometimes wonder if some things, if my career would have been different if I did other choices. And one thing I, which wasn't good or what wasn't that great is my choice of the PhD lab actually and PhD project. Um, I think, uh, first of all, I chose a project which did not completely satisfy my interest. Like I made certain sacrifices in terms of uh, what exactly to study it was towards my direction but not my, my interest but not exactly um, fitting and the second was that um, unfortunately I didn't have such a great supervisor um, and at least definitely it, there was no match between us and I struggled a lot with uh, too much independence too early on in my project and I think what I could have done then is to actually change a PhD project early uh, this would have been a good decision I think I think also with a bit more knowledge I would have chosen a better place and so on and maybe I would be less disappointed uh, with research by the end of the PhD maybe but not necessarily so eventually maybe still it would be it would have went very similar way what if it would have saved me some frustration, I think, during these years in the lab. But on the other hand, uh, all this uh, if uh, world is very imaginary. So the experience I gathered is the experience that built me who I am now. Uh, I also can give 
good advice on how to choose a PhD project PhD supervisor, I guess, I think, because my experience wasn't great. And I paid a lot of attention to how it's happening with other people because I was trying to figure out if this is something that happens specifically to me, if this happens to everyone, or if I made some not great decisions. And I think I made some very good observations, which I actually can uh, present as a good advice. And this doesn't happen to people who actually had a good experience in PhD. I would never ask advice from people who had a good PhD experience because they have no idea what can go wrong. Everything went well for them. And this was often not their effort, not the result of their effort, but that they were a bit luckier. Uh, so overall, yeah, what kind of advice I can give to myself? <laughs> no, that's not easy. I can give some general advice that I keep giving myself. Uh, and it's about networking again. Um, I'm introverted person. I It's a lot of emotional effort and it comes with emotional cost and uh, I would say even physical cost for me to interact with people. Like I get really tired uh, with a lot of interaction. And um, while I told you you should follow kind of your personality, I think for social interactions, you also need to realize this is important in our life. And while being attentive to yourself, um, you should still invest in this. Like this is something which is good investment. Um, and uh, I try to find a way to balance with uh, investment and uh, payoff and still find time to meet new people to um, interact to network and I do think this is the best way to kind of ensure that you will always have something to do interesting in your life because the more people you know that do different stuff the more opportunities you see and the more there are chances that there will be some intersection of what you want to do and what they want to do at some point and you can do something together or they can offer you a job you offer them a job so this really creates a big difference and a different kind of opportunities i actually think for 15 by 4 uh, the fact that i already was quite conscious about uh, networking by the moment i started i think it helped us a lot because many things came to us due to connections like deutsches museum i mean we were still a small local English-speaking uh, event in Munich, they would never approach us if there was no a networking connection from me to, to them. So I do recommend myself, uh, remind myself regularly that, um, are you, I, am I doing any kind of networking and uh, communication with people? Do I have a bit more uh, time to invest into this? Can I reach out to someone who I didn't talk to many years, but see what they are doing. Uh, and I also try to always keep in mind my people I already know. And whenever I come across something interesting that I know might be used for someone else, again, I don't want to write a message. I really don't want to do this interaction, but um, I tell myself, well, this is good. And imagine how great it is when someone does the same for you. And people will do this if only if you do it first. So take five minutes and do it. Okay. Well, 
those are some strong words to end it off with. Um, so the bottom line is really networking, 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 and try to see what is out there. Um, and with that, of course, listen to this podcast. So yeah, Victoria, thank you so much for talking to me, to me today. Um, it's been really, really nice. I learned a lot and I hope everyone else also did. Thank you so much. And, and I hope that we really get to meet each other in, in real life someday. Yeah. Thank you so much, Nikki, for inviting me. I also think this podcast is a really great idea. And it's very also, I'm very happy to see that there are more and more these initiatives coming from student side to connect the PhD students and researchers with the world outside to show the variety of jobs you can do and show all the different stories because you can never make any judgment from one story, but seeing more of them, you can figure out what would work for you and find ways for yourself. So thank you so much for doing that and for inviting me. And that's it for our interview today. You can find her on LinkedIn and Twitter at NeuroVictoria. If you like this episode, please subscribe, share, and follow us on Twitter or LinkedIn at Career Navigators to be updated with new and upcoming episodes and for more information. If you have questions or suggestions, or if you have any interesting career stories we can all learn from, please reach out on social media or send us an email at careernavigators.pod at gmail.com. I would like to thank Johan Frieden for making our logo, Lindsay Baltima for help with social media and production, Gustavo Carrizo for editing, mixing, and sound design. That's it for me. Catch you in two weeks. Later, navigators.